What is population health? Why do some people become sick while others don't? How do we study and what can we do to eliminate health inequities? Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the new podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science covers these topics and more. Join us. Aresha Martinez Cardoso from the University of Chicago. Mike Esposito from Washington University in St. Louis. Daryl Hudson, also from Washington University in St. Louis. Twice a month as we discuss cutting edge population health research with scholars working across disciplinary boundaries. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Sick Individuals, Sick Populations. We all know the importance of socioeconomic resources in relation to health. There are countless studies conducted over so many decades that have continued to demonstrate that some socioeconomic resources such as income affect a wide range of health outcomes. But there are a lot of nuances, and as a field, the question of what can be done to address the lack of socioeconomic resources remains somewhat elusive. More scholars and policymakers have pointed to guaranteed income initiatives as a potential solution to improve population health and a range of other outcomes. So today, we're really fortunate to have Lori Dean, Associate Professor of Epidemiology and Health Management and Policy at Johns Hopkins University to join us to discuss the potential of guaranteed income initiatives. Dr. Dean is a social epidemiologist who examines privilege and disadvantage and how those things influence chronic disease. So Dr. Dean, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to share this conversation today. Great. We're happy to have you. And as mentioned before, we spent a lot of time thinking about, talking about, writing about the importance of social resources, especially income, as they relate to health and health inequities. And we spend a lot less time, however, thinking about how to actually get money into the hands of people who need it. So one solution is the implementation of guaranteed income programs. So I was wondering if you could first just define what that is. What does guaranteed income mean? So you bring up a great point. In social epidemiology especially, we talk a lot about the socioeconomic gradient of health, right? This idea that people's health is better at the, at the, uh, at the higher ends of the socioeconomic spectrum. And guaranteed income is, is really based on thinking about changing that, dis that socioeconomic distribution in a population. So guaranteed income, it's a type of cash transfer program and it's unique in that you get continuous, so money over time, unconditional, that is no requirements, no work requirements, you don't even necessarily have to file taxes or anything like that in order to get it, mm -hmm. and unrestricted cash transfers. And when I say unrestricted, I mean that you can use it for anything, no one's tracking it, it doesn't have mm -hmm. to be used just for one purpose or another. And most of the time, those funds are given to individuals or households there's generally very few eligibility requirements, but one thing that's really important and an important distinction as we talk about guaranteed income is that it's not the same as basic income. Mm. Basic income is this idea that you're getting this, this income that actually can support your entire life or in an amount that can support whatever your basic needs are. Guaranteed income is more of a, a supplemental amount that's supposed mm. to help move you forward, but not necessarily it may not necessarily meet all of your basic needs. So what's really neat is now in the US especially, there's been this momentum around guaranteed income particularly. 
Okay, yeah, so that's really great, right? Like, uh, helpful to kind of separate out these two ideas between like a guaranteed income program and universal basic income. I'm clearly not paying attention to the world and always lump those two things together. Mm -hmm. So to kind of flesh things in a little bit more for kind of readers and help us understand this concept a bit more, can you give us some examples of existing guaranteed income programs? And then also to kind of like, you know, motivate how important they are and how good of an idea they are. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of the evidence on um, what do they work, kind of like what outcomes they help improve them, just to flesh in that idea a little bit more for us? Sure. You might be surprised to think about or to know that guaranteed income programs are actually not new in the United States. So we've actually had them. They've been around for quite a while. Mm. So one of the ones that you probably, well, unless you lived there, unless you lived in Alaska, you might not know about, but there's something called the Alaska Dividend Fund, or I think sometimes it's referred to as the Alaska Permanent Fund, which mm. automatically grants each Alaskan resident a share of the, of the Alaska's gas and oil revenues through mm. a particular fund. So everyone in Alaska can register essentially for this additional money that's proceeds from the oil revenue. And this was actually after, I think this started in the 60s. It was in response to a drop in oil-driven wealth in Alaska. And so it's been going for nearly 40 years. I, I think hmm. it was first proposed in the 60s or 70s and then started in the 80s. So we've had these programs in the U.S. for a while. They're not exactly new, but I feel like they're taking on a new resurgence because now they're being thought of as a potential remedy to persistent income inequality and mm. other challenges that we see continuing and even increasing in the U.S. What's really neat is most recently, you might have heard about the SEED program. So the SEED program, the SEED is actually an acronym for Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration Program. Stockton is because it's in Stockton, California. And that one's really neat because it's a combination of academics. So three, two academics and the mayor of Stockton, Mayor Michael Tubbs, and then the academics are Amy Castro Baker and Stacia West, who work together to develop a randomized controlled trial. Yes, you heard it. People do randomized controlled trials outside of health and medicine um, to, to implement the SEED program. And the SEED program essentially gives 125 residents, randomly selected, low-income residents of Stockton, about $500 a month for 24 months. Hmm. So that program, and then there's a control group because it's a randomized control trial who doesn't get that money, and then they track the outcomes over time. Hmm. That program is a little more than a year in. They just released their one-year report. Um, so we're still trying to understand and learn more about what the actual outcomes of that but they've definitely seen that there were, one, definitely people were doing better economically. They were doing better in terms of, I believe, uh, childcare. And then they saw less stress and greater and better emotional health. Hmm. There's another, but this is all part of a movement that's happening all across the nation right now. That SEED program might have been, and app so aptly named, the first in a series of guaranteed income pilots that are all happening under Mayors for a Guaranteed Income. Mm. Mayors for a Guaranteed Income is this initiative where mayors all across the country are building their own pilots. And in fact, where I am in Baltimore, we have a guaranteed income pilot and I'm part of the mm. steering committee there to help us think about the links between that and health. Oh, that's really cool. I feel like I've heard of the Stockton program and I feel like now that you're talking about the mayors, I mean, Chicago, I feel like the Chicago mayor announced one as well. 
So I feel like the train's coming. Um, what about inter international examples? Like I think a lot of um, some of the, I think a lot of other countries do a better job than we do of some of these programs. Do you, off the top of your head, are you um, familiar with any? So there are many types of cash transfer programs. Not mm -hmm. all of them are guaranteed income. Some of them are basic income. And cash transfer programs themselves are not new. I mean, behavioral economists, health economists, they've been doing this work all over the place. Mm. A lot of times in low and middle income countries, and a lot of times it's around building families or improving birth weight or improving ch child health outcomes. So a lot of the literature is really focused on thinking about improving the lives of parents and, and children. But I'd also say a lot of that literature is also rooted in thinking about the economic outcomes and right. not necessarily the health outcomes. And that's where some of the work that I've been doing with a team of people, and I have to shout them out because it's been a great team, um, but the person who really put me on to guaranteed income is a current doctoral student at Hopkins, um, Sivali Sanyan, who works at the, who was working to do advocacy and organizing around guaranteed income in California. Holly Nishimura is another doctoral student and who has worked in cash transfer programs in some of the other countries as we talk about this international focus. Mm. And then uh, Dr. Marik Moen at the University of Maryland. So we currently have a program where we are trying to look into the literature and understand from the perspective of guaranteed income, what might be the particular health outcomes? Mm. Because traditionally health folks have really not been in the space of guaranteed income. And you can see that even in some of the evaluation work that's being done in the guaranteed income pilots, that there hasn't been a lot of concrete or objective health data. So the project that we are looking at is doing some in-depth interviews with people who have been in cash transfer programs in the past, as well as community stakeholders who are partners and nonprofits who, who might have distributed funds for cash transfer programs, like the COVID relief programs, cash was another type of cash transfer program. And, and then also looking into the literature to see how this might impact health. And we think that it might impact health in, you know, psychosocially, in terms of physical health. For example, it might enable people to purchase more nutritious foods or access to health care. People can now afford to buy glasses and dental care and those sorts of things that are usually outside of their traditional health insurance coverage. Um, but then also those other social determinants of health, which are important to me as a social epidemiologist. So just being able to have stable household and something stable that you can count on to know where your, your money is coming from each month. Now, that's really cool. I think um, it sounds like you've got some, first, some additional IPHS members on your team. If, if they're not already, <laughs> please throw for the join the party. Um, Great plug. And then, free plug. Um, and then I think the other thing that was really interesting was a bunch of things that you mentioned that were really interesting, but I, I think one of the takeaway messages for me is that these programs are not necessarily new. And it's interesting because in the, not to get into politics, but we talk about politics a lot on the, on the podcast, but um, a lot of these initiatives are oftentimes labeled as like socialist or, you know, uh, distributive and taken from the haves and given to the have-nots. But it sounds like, especially in spaces like Alaska even, which you would not think about in terms of like progressive policy, um, these, these initiatives have been around for a long time. Um, and, and I would just, just to put a pin on, on, on some of these distinctions too, 
there's there's others that I've heard of and and excuse my own ignorance of these these spaces um so I've heard of things like earned income tax credit um child development accounts individual development accounts baby bonds mm. are all those like other types of um you know cash transfers in the same way that you're describing as guaranteed income or are those more like what what are those <laughs> so that's a great question many of those are types of cash transfer programs but they're not necessarily guaranteed income programs so i think the earned income mm. tax credit is a great example it's earned income which means that it's conditional mm. upon mm. having income guaranteed income programs are unconditional so you don't have to have an income you don't necessarily have to file taxes mm. i think that's really what makes it distinct from some of these other programs that are attempting these, like you called redistributive programs, that guaranteed income is not conditional on working or other things um, that these other programs are. Yeah, that's um, an important distinction. Yeah, yeah, as people, especially as we like think about the policy levers. I, I remember reading something about like conditional programs um, end up costing us more money because of the bureaucracy and the administration that it takes to, you know, review people's pay stubs and like, where are they living and all the income and who lives in mm -hmm. your house? Like we end up spending more money on those programs just in the administration at, than if we were to just give people, right, like a $500 check, we would actually spend that money. Like the money would actually go directly to, um, to people as opposed to like bureaucracy. Bureau bureaucracies and bureaucrats and administrators. Um, you, go ahead. That reminds me of, a, of another important point is that one of the concerns that people have is because these programs are um, unconditional and then also don't have any stipulations about what the money is spent for, that unrestricted part, people are concerned that, oh, well, people use it, you know, just to get, mm -hmm. you know, a, a, you know right. Disney Plus or, you know, some additional TV. package or whatever. Yeah. Right. Well, they use it to spend recklessly. We find that that's not true, not in the international sense and not in the mm -hmm. US, that people really do use it on their actual needs, that it's not going to, people were concerned about, uh, you know, drugs or other things. It's not being used for those things. Um, it's really truly being used to lift people out of poverty. And yeah. I also think, right, some of this is that argument, we always want to look at the bottom of the distribution right. and talk about what they're doing. But we right. don't talk about the actual inequality in the whole system mm. and the people at the top that are not doing their mm -hmm. fair share and taking so much more than they need, right? So I think it's important that we don't just focus on the people at the bottom of the distribution and say that they shouldn't get more when the people at the top are getting a lot. They're getting a lot of tax breaks. They're getting a lot of quote unquote social welfare and welfare. Yeah. We just don't yeah. call it that in the same yeah. way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And that kind of kind of leads into, I think, another question, right? Because I think I can anticipate your answer for this. Um, but it seems like these sorts of programs are, uh, would be really, really fantastic for closing uh, kind of like racialized gaps in uh, kind of his, or not closing because we're in a racist system. And so <laughs> doing one point intervention is not going to change much, um, right. but it can at least make some progress in kind of closing racialized gaps um, uh, like eight across the U.S. population. Right. And so I uh, like as a form of reparations, but if you want to frame it that way. So are there 
it's like these kind of illusory arguments like oh well people are going to buy drugs or well, the anti-poverty like kind of poor shame and arguments are there is there any reason that this might not work or might not succeed to kind of like close these racialized gaps? It's like legitimate and not like out of the fear of poverty or something, mm. or is it just kind of universally like this will kind of like close gaps? This is like a, a completely beneficial kind of intervention. So I would actually say not quite. I actually don't think that this can be framed in the same space of thinking about reparations. Oh, yeah. for a number of reasons. And this is this is my personal opinion. Like people might differ on this. But <laughs> one is, you know, I don't think that these programs would actually give enough for actually redressing the mm. amount and the amount of the disparity that we see, right? There's that statistic that um I think it would take um, 230 more years for black wealth to catch up with white wealth if without any intervention at all, right? Mm. So we have a lot that that's being carried as uh, you know as black families um, that we won't catch up. I think guaranteed income could help with that, but usually the amounts that people are getting are really enough to just help meet their needs. But I don't know if it would be actually enough for people to actually build wealth and, and overcome some of those wealth inequalities. And also remember, this isn't necessarily a program that's exclusive to Black families or marginalized groups. It's for low-income families, and Black families are disproportionately in poverty and low income, so it might help from that end and I do think it is a way to dismantle some of the economic repercussions of structural racism. But I actually think the reparations conversation is separate from that. And there mm -hmm. needs to be a whole lot of other things happening. Sure. I think someone someone earlier mentioned um, baby bonds, so like, like Derek Hamilton's work in baby yep. bonds, right? Mm -hmm. I think yeah. things like that might be a better a better way to think about overcoming, or a better way to think about reparations than something like guaranteed income. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. I think building on that, um, you know, we're in population health. And so we're really interested in seeing how initiatives like this could potentially close health gaps as well. And obviously, like I said before at the beginning, there's a, a long standing association between socioeconomic resources like income and various health outcomes. Well, I was wondering if if there's any evidence that exists that shows that these guaranteed income programs actually do improve health or somehow reduce health inequities. If there is that evidence, it's very scant, and we have not seen that in our literature review quite yet. Mm. A couple of reasons behind that is because guaranteed income is often lumped in with other types of cash transfer programs, so the unique impacts of a guaranteed income type of cash transfer wow. program have not been disentangled from some of the mm. other types of programs. That's actually part of the project that I mentioned earlier that we are trying to do is just look at things that meet the definition of guaranteed income and health outcomes. And I have a, another project where we are trying to understand what might be the potential impacts on health equity. Um, most of the pilots and most of the work that has been done again has focused on lifting people up economically, right, which is a step in the right direction to health disparities. And we can even look at, for example, the data in seed to see the types of things that people spend money on. Mm -hmm. But I don't think the explicit looking at whether or not this helps close disparities really has been seen. And right, and, and you also have to think about a disparity is something that's referential, right? So if is it that everyone mm -hmm. in this program 
improves their health, in which case we might not be actually closing the disparity, or is it that certain groups of people are doing better in health, right? And that's helping to close right. the disparity. Um, that that remains that remains to be seen, but that's the work that we're trying to do and understand yeah. more. And yeah. honestly, you know, this is a policy initiative that's moving very quickly across okay. the United States. Right. We might not know that before these things start being taken away or or scaled up. But I think it's important from a health perspective for us to understand the many tools that might be available to improve mm -hmm. people's health. And I have heard that some hospitals, for example, are doing mm -hmm. their own mini pilots. For example, I believe there's one that's looking at cancer patients and trying to do a guaranteed income around cancer patients for a particular hospital. So these might be tools that we can use on all different scales to impact health and health equity. Cool. Oh, really interesting. So lots to sort of pay attention to in the years to come. I know definitely with the election, people were talking about guaranteed basic income. So I think there's probably a lot to, to keep our eye on. Um, we also wanted to probe sort of a different area. We're talking a lot about um, income today, but you've also looked at other socioeconomic resources in your research uh, that also might be linked to some of these uh, economic inequalities, uh, especially credit scores. Could you talk a little bit about some of the work that you've done in relation to credit and health? We're really interested. Are you sure you want to go down this path? I mean, I think we could doing an entirely separate. <laughs> give us, give us the teaser. So I'm so excited yeah. about this. Give no, us the teaser. Got you. We, want to, we want to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> so this credit score work was really born out of, about, out of the acknowledgement that our current measures of socioeconomic position might not service, serve, continue to service as well as they have before, given mm -hmm. a lot of changing landscapes. So for example, we talk about socioeconomic position and we talk about income, income education and, and, um, and wealth, right? Income, it, it, one, people don't like to tell us their income on survey data, on survey data, and it, it's sensitive, but also the nature of people's income is changing, right? There's an increase in the gig economy. So if you're a person who is a, an artist and then also driving um, a, in a rideshare service, you might not know what your income is going to be from year to year. And there are more and more people in what we call a precarious employment situations where we, where people actually can't predict and can't really tell us very well what their income is. And I think we have some of the same challenges when we think about trying to understand people's wealth and even the value of education as an indicator changes by generation. So a, a high school degree, you know, 30 years ago is not does not mean the same in terms of a high school degree now and how far it can get you. So recognizing all of these limitations, um, I was trying to think through what are some other measures that we might be able to point to that can capture both the resource and privilege aspects of socioeconomic position. And as I was thinking about this, a study came out from Dunedin, New Zealand that looked at credit scores and it was credit scores and I think it was a type of um, cognition, cognitive function. And I was on a K01 at the time and my mentor said, you know, you should really check out that article and think about working that into your K01. And so I added a couple of measures, credit score measures into my K01, which was looking at the economics uh, after breast cancer. So essentially once you have breast cancer, what do your economics look like 10 years down the line? Mm really interesting is that I found in that study of individual level credit scores, credit was actually a better indicator of mm. self-rated health after cancer than all of the other traditional measures combined. Wow. And I'm a social epi person. So, you know, I put 
all the measures in there. I mean, I had the MacArthur ladder. I had every, I mean, all of them combined. So I said, like, wow, this is really big. And it was associated with people's economic well-being at that time. Um, so then I thought, well, if I'm going to be a real, a true social epi person, I can't just think about this at an individual level. Mm-hmm. I should also think about what's happening at people's neighborhood level in the context mm-hmm. of credit in which they operate, because your credit score could actually be different if you move to a different neighborhood, even with the same mm-hmm. behaviors. So, really? you know, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So you just literally people in the same, having the same credit history, living in different neighborhoods can have different credit scores. So there's something about context that's mm-hmm. important to, to capture. And so I started doing some work linking neighborhood level credit scores to chronic disease and showed that neighborhood level credit score, higher credit scores of your neighborhood uh, are associated with less chronic disease. And then we have some forthcoming work on looking at credit scores, neighborhood credit scores and BMI, crime, HIV. Um, I would say in the midst of all this, one of the things, one important takeaway is to, we really need to think about using the work for good and just, I think it was last week, a tweet came across. Has anybody else heard about this study about credit scores and surgical residents? Oh my goodness, I can't believe that that came out. Oh, oh sorry, don't hurt. hear about it? No, tell me, tell me, what did you hear about it? What did you hear I, about it? I, I just saw the tweet and I saw everybody blowing it up. It was like, um, <laughs> yeah, for good reasons, for reasons that I 1000% agree with, just like, how could you because it wasn't framed correctly right it wasn't framed right it was like oh this is a positive thing um credit scores are predictive in this way that's not tied up in all this historical violence right yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah but go please go ahead well so yeah the study suggested that surgical residents who had better credit scores i believe were more likely to graduate or something like that or be successful in you know in surgery Uh. so um not surgery that health outcome but like you know in the surgery trainee space. Mm-hmm. And so at initially the paper actually championed using credit scores for surgery resident admissions. Wow. And I was like, oh my God, there's so many things wrong with <laughs> oh that. Oh my God. <laughs> so many things wrong with that. It felt like that Black Mirror episode with Lacey. I don't know if anyone's seen the nosedive episode where um, everyone has a social credit score rating and yeah. Oh yeah, it like yeah, yeah. That, it felt like that nightmare. Um, what I did find is that I think in the last couple of days, the author, authors actually went back and corrected that article and, and basically said, we are not advocating, we are, you know, we're no longer advocating that this be used in admissions, you know, that we spoke out of our, our depth and out of the range of what the data could speak. Mm. So they, so they did recant at least, but right, <laughs> we need to use this work for good. And we need to use this to, to understand yeah. and uplift people, not use this as a as a way to socially stratify who should who's deserving of certain right. resources or others. Well, yeah, yeah, very generous of that. And this is me, Michael Esposito, not speaking a PHS. So, <laughs> like, this is not our opinion, <laughs> but very, very convenient of them to are generous of them to go back and alter their kind of conclusions for kind of the importance of credit scores um, after kind of getting blown up. After publicly. getting reasons <laughs> on <Yeah>. Twitter, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The power yeah. of social media. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's super yeah. interesting. Like, I don't know what, like now that I'm thinking of it as hearing you talk about it, I'm like, of course, credit scores, it's brilliant. Like, why have we not thought about this? Because it just encapsulates so much, right? It's just like privilege and wealth and, you can have a ton of debt and have yet a great credit score, right? Because you're, exactly. you know, financially savvy, you know, all these in ways that I think we don't think about the other metrics. So 
Um, it's super exciting to hear you talk about it. You really light up when you when you talk about this work. <laughs> I, I do. And I was going to say, though, I'm excited about it, but it is also a check your privilege moment, too, right? Mm. Because, I mean, 20% of the population actually doesn't have credit scores mm. uh, for all different reasons, right? Mm -hmm. Not having the resources, not wanting to engage in the system, not having enough history. Nonetheless, right, we also end up with about 20% missing data on people's income. So it's probably mm. no worse <laughs> than the income yeah. measures. But we also need to think about even in doing this research, are there populations who get excluded? We know that um, um, Black families were systematically excluded from building wealth and actually engaging in the credit system for, you know, since it started. I mean, literally barred from being a part of that system. So, right, so there's also a kind of a racial equity question when we mm -hmm. think about credit score work as well. I'm still trying to work through that and understand mm -hmm. that. But I, I do really invite other researchers to be in this space and to think about you know, how credit scores might be able to be captured and how that may be able to do it. Um, Lauren Nicholas and I have a paper in AJPH that offers some guidance and thoughts to people on how to use credit scores in your work. So yeah. to all the IAPHS members out there, think about the credit scores. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that is brilliant. This is really awesome and just kind of eye-opening, right? Like we're in such a weird kind of financial landscape where, you know, financial instruments are like, there's so many kind of like abstracted, really complicated ones, right? That are kind of like clearly causing it, you know, latching on to historical racial violence and causing a bunch of harm. Like we're just like, oh, income, income, wealth, right? Kind of ignoring kind of this big financial landscape. Yeah. Um, and so your work that's like, no, we need to kind of center these sorts of things, starting with credit scores and maybe moving to more kind of abstracted kind of parts of this financialization system is just absolutely tremendous. Yeah. Cool. Excited yeah, to see. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. As I remember meeting um, Lori a couple of years ago, APHA, when we can meet at meetings in person, <laughs> And um, we talked about this credit score work and I, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I never thought about this and <laughs> being in the same space, you know, and knowing all the limitations of our traditional socioeconomic measures like income, um, people don't report it. Education doesn't mean the same thing. And, you know, there's quality differences across different types of schools and universities, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's so many limitations and wealth is just impossible to measure um, accurately. And so the credit score work is, is really fascinating to me. And, and like you said, we'll, we'll try to plug that paper and AJPH um, to, to give a guide as to what, what you can use those scores for. Um, they're really, really rich and thoughtful, brilliant way to, to think about a different measure that most of us are impacted by we think about on our on our personal levels but we yeah. never think about in terms of like a, a research perspective for sure thanks for letting me nerd out about it <laughs> no absolutely that's what we do on this podcast is nerd out for our for our listeners here nerding out with us um but th thank you we know we, you have many other things to actually nerd out on in, in, in the course of the day so really appreciate you for joining us today and sharing your work and your enthusiasm and your contributions to the field um and we're really grateful to our listeners as usual for joining us today and we'll hopefully see you another time at sick individuals sick populations